All right, kiddos, fifth grade and under, Miss Courtney's back by the double doors, ready to usher you guys to Children's Church. It'll be good times, I'm sure. So if you are fifth grade and under and want to go to Children's Church, make your way there before the train leaves. Chugga-chugga-choo-choo. There we go. All right. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open them up to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. And we've been uh, marching through the Gospel of John now um, some 45 weeks it's taken us to get through. 17 and a half chapters, and um, I hope that you've enjoyed the journey. I hope that God's used this to um, reveal some things in your lives, as he has mine. To give us, to set up to today's portion of scripture, I want us to remember, going back to John chapter 13, this is really, John chapter 13 begins this evening, and um, that this part of scripture is a part of. Uh, John 13 is the beginning of what we call the upper room discourse. So John 13 through John 16 is really this, this discourse of Jesus with his disciples. In John 13, we see where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And we've talked about this um, several times. This is a really uh, a unique and impactful time because this was a, a job held for the most um, lowest of servants. And yet Jesus is the one who gets on his knees and takes this basin of water and begins to scrub the dirty feet of the disciples. Um, that, that final night, I mean, really, I mean, that, that next day, he'll, he'll be, later that evening, in fact, he'll be arrested. And so he's, he's there. He, the one who has already betrayed him, the one who's already struck a deal with the religious leaders, Judas, I mean, Jesus gets to his feet and he washes his feet. Uh, Peter, the one who will deny him three times. Deny him three times. The one who spent three and a half years with him. The one who boasts time after time after time about how, how near and dear he was to Jesus will deny Christ three times, yet Jesus washes his feet. Uh, to me, it's just an amazing story. And so John chapter 13, we see where Jesus washes the feet of the disciples. And after that, he goes and um, they begin to break bread. And then as we read that story, we realize that the, the table was kind of built in a U-shape, and Jesus is at the center, and he's got Judas on one side, and John, who wrote this narrative, this gospel here, on the other. And Peter was probably at the far end, and, and Jesus began to talk about how one there was going to betray him. And Jesus, Judas, or Peter was convinced he didn't know what was going on, so he's asking John to tell him who it was. And at the end of the day, Jesus identifies Judas as the one who would betray him by dipping the bread and offering it to Judas, and Judas receiving it. Uh, and what's so impactful and important about that, 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 that lesson there or that, that specific portion of Scripture was what Jesus was doing was giving Judas another opportunity to repent. He was, he was offering, it was a love token to Judas, who was sitting at the, the seat of honor that evening. And Judas, or Jesus breaks his bread, he dips it, and he offers it to Judas as this peace offering, telling Judas, come on, it's okay, it's not too late. And then once Peter receives that bread, then Jesus turns to him and says, go, go about your business, leave. And so Judas leaves in John chapter 13, he leaves to finish up, tie up all the loose ends with the religious leaders, and, um, and then Jesus hunkers down with those last 11 disciples and spends the next few moments with some just intense, intimate time 
with those men who had traveled for three and a half years, those, those men who had given up everything in their lives to follow this master, this teacher, their rabbi. And so they do this in Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6. I hope you have it underlined in your Bible, highlighted, circled, whatever it is. It's, to me, it's one of the most important, one of the most critical um, verses in the entire Bible where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, we live in a day and age where um, uh, absolute truth is not often accepted, uh, especially when it comes to, to the area of religion and faith. Um, it, it, we, we, we live in a society that tells us if it pleases us, it's okay. If it's kind of good, it's okay. Surely there's more than one way to get to heaven. And Jesus says there's not. That's it. There's one way. I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life. I've, I told you before, if you ever get in a conversation with somebody who will tell you, well, Jesus never claimed to be God, you can take them straight to John fourteen six and tell them, it says it right here where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay? And so we talked and saw that in John 14. John 15, uh, at the very end of John 14, Jesus turns to his disciples and says, all right, guys, it's time to go. So they leave the upper room um, at the end of John chapter 14. And then and as they're wandering and, and making their way to the Garden of Gethsemane, we see three different things take place. Jesus, um, more than likely as they're going through this travel, they, they pass through this vineyard. And Jesus begins to use this as an illustration. He talks about the, bron- the vine and the branches. So the first, the first third of John chapter 15, talks, Jesus talks about, uses this illustration of Jesus being the vine and the disciples being the branches, and um, how they need to stay connected to the vine. And then after that, the second middle portion of John 15, he talks about this relationship between believer and believer, how important it is that, that you um, encompass yourself with Christian friends. And I've made this statement, I beg, plead with you guys, um, your best friends ought to be your church friends. You need to have good, strong Christian friends around you to support you uh, we're going to see that again in the scripture today jesus in his prayer goes back to this strong desire that you have christian friends around you in your life that's why church is so important and so critical today is that we are around not only god's teaching not only is it because we get to, to worship god in music but ultimately we get a chance to build relationships with people that we go through life with and so as those difficult days occur we have people that help push us through it help lift us up and get through it and then at the end of John chapter 15, Jesus makes a promise. And it's one of those promises that we don't necessarily grab and get that warm, fuzzy feeling about. Right? When we talk about God's love, we get that warm, fuzzy feeling, right? We get the promise of, that Christ is going to leave, but he's coming back. We get that warm, fuzzy feeling. But John, at the end of John chapter 15, Jesus declares persecution's coming. If you believe me, if you follow me, if you're a true Christian, persecution will come. It's a promise. And that's one of those things like we don't like, like that, right? I mean, we don't like the uncomfortableness of being picked on. Whatever that looks like. I, and we've talked a little bit about what, what, is, what is persecution? What, what does that look like today? Um, and, and things change. And I don't know. I can't tell you what persecution in your life is now, was in the past. And I certainly can't tell you what it will be in the future. But the reality is, if we believe in Christ, if we follow Christ, there will be persecution. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. It's the truth. It's a promise by God. If Jesus made the promise, we've got to believe it. Uh, and so we saw that at the very end of uh, John chapter 15. Uh, John 16, we see, again, a kind of a continuation. And we, the major themes of John chapter 16, where Jesus tells us the way that we can find true joy. 
Um, and I, I, I encouraged us as a faith family that we not chase happiness, what the world tells us is going to bring us happiness. Even, in, even the good things in life that we, that we can consider to be good things. The Bible talks a lot about marriage. And marriage can be a blessing. But if you're going to try and find happiness, if you think your source of happiness will be found in your marriage, you're going to live a frustrated life. Okay? If you think that your happiness will come in your children, moms and dads, you'll be extremely frustrated. Because remember those things, our, our spouse is a sinner, our children are sinners. All those things, they're great, they're blessings of God, but when we all of a sudden we, we try and replace God with something that he's given us, it will fall desperately short. And so Jesus tells us in John chapter 16 that we need to find our true joy in him. Uh, afterwards, he goes on and talks about love, true love, that we need to love one another. And then finally, the idea of finding lasting peace. And the only way we can find true joy, the only way we can find true love, and the only way we can obtain lasting peace is through faith, a faith in Jesus Christ. So that ends kind of the discourse. Then John chapter 17 begins. And in your Bibles, more than likely, in the, on the, the heading, maybe in the column or the side of your scripture, John chapter 17, describes this as a high priestly prayer. Okay, that's a really eloquent title, isn't it? Um, and whenever you insert that word priestly, I don't know about you, but my mind automatically goes to some guy wearing this royal robe with a big tall hat. I don't know, that's just the way I think. But, but I think high priestly prayer, and, that's, and Jesus is a high priest. But I have this idea of formal, traditional, cold thought. And, and, and really a better title for this portion of Scripture, a better title for John chapter 17 is the Lord's Prayer. Um, and we give that title, Lord's Prayer, often to a, that model that um, Matthew describes where Jesus tells the disciples, this is how you should pray. But this is not an example of how to pray. This is a literal prayer that Jesus had with his Father. And so this ultimately, I believe, is the Lord's Prayer. This is, we, see G, we see the heart of Jesus. And, and, and again, what's so impactful, what's so important for us to understand as we get to this is Jesus is mere moments away from being arrested. Okay, he knows exactly what's about to go down. He knows all the hardships that's coming. Okay, all this stuff's going on. I mean, this is, this is earth-shattering, historical-changing events, events that human history had never seen and hasn't seen since. This is huge stuff. Jesus knows everything that's about to occur. And so in the midst of this, he stops and he prays. And last week, we looked at the first six verses of John chapter 17. And in these first Six verses, it's a prayer that Jesus is saying to his Father, asking for strength. He's praying for himself. Um, we drew attention to a couple things last week. Um, one where we mentioned there um, in verse 1 towards the end where he says, Father, the hour has come. And all throughout John we see Jesus always referring to, well, the time is not here. The hour has not yet come. You remember back to John chapter 2 when Jesus turns water into wine. They're at the wedding, and, and Jesus' mom comes to him. They're out of wine, and she wants him to turn do something about it. And Jesus turns to his mom and says, hey, mom, or as he said, woman, the hour has not come. My hour has not come. And so we see all throughout John, my hour has not come. It's not time for me to re- be revealed. And this idea of glory, glorification, is Jesus' death, resurrection, and then ultimately his ascension to heaven. So he's saying that, but, but now it, it changes where Jesus says, listen, the hour has come. 
Um, it's time for, for uh, to be glorified. Um, I, I love how um, towards the end of those verses, verse 4, he says that, um, I glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me. Um, maybe your translation may say finished. Um, and we, we spent a good deal last week talking about this idea about finish, that, that God had a specific plan for Jesus. And Jesus came, and he did, and he finished exactly what God wanted him to do. And the reality is this. God has a plan for each of us today. He has a specific plan for you as an individual, you as a family, us as a church. Like He has a plan for us. And I challenge us to think through that. Because some of us know what the plan is. Some of us, when we get to church, some of us, when we do our, our quiet time, when we're in a Bible study or something like that, we listen to some, some Christian music, like we feel the Holy Spirit prodding us. And we know exactly what God's calling us to do, but we deflect it with excuses. We come up with reasons why we shouldn't do it, or, or, or the time's not quite right. Um, God's got a plan for us. We go back in Scripture, how would we think if um, Noah gets the family together, they start building the ark, and they get the whole frame structure done, and, Jesus, or, and Noah turns to the rest of the family and says, you know what, I think this is good enough. I think, we're just, I think we've done all we need to do. Now, I'm not a master carpenter. I can call Mr. Husbands up here, and he can help us out with this. But if you just have the structure, the outer frame of a boat, and there's nothing else there, when the rain comes, I don't think it's going to float. It's certainly not going to hold all the animals, is it? So I don't know about you, but I'm pretty thankful that Noah completed the task that God had for him. And there's people after people in the scriptures that we can talk about. And what we have to always understand is the task isn't always easy. The task isn't always comfortable. But God will receive glory if we're faithful to him in the task. Uh, I encouraged us last week to quit praying for God to change the circumstance and turn around and ask God to change us. See, some of those circumstances God's going to use in tremendous ways. I mean, Joseph. You guys remember Joseph, kid with the coat of many colors, gets this fantastic coat. He's bragging to the family. The brothers get mad at him. They throw him in a little hole and they sell him off. That's not a good thing, is it? It's not fun. He gets sent to a whole other country. I'm sure he's praying for God to change things, but God doesn't change the circumstance. He stays in jail, or he stays as a slave. Uh, he goes, gets sold into Potiphar's house. Um, okay, that's exciting, right? Potiphar, really wealthy, probably doing really well, and then Potiphar's wife has the hots for him. And he runs from her, and the reward he gets for doing what's right is to be thrown in jail. Circumstance gets worse, not better. But God continues to use those circumstances to the point where, where he ultimately raises Joseph up to be what we consider like the prime minister of Egypt. And when the famine strikes, because Joseph was faithful to God, he was blessed personally because he was given a high rank. He blessed the country because he saved the country with storing up all the goods. And then his family came back to him and Joseph was able to bless his family. Circumstance never changed, did it? 
It was hard. It was difficult. It wasn't, it wasn't a week or two of going through some tough times. Those were years and years in prison. But God is sovereign, and he used those difficult things to mold Joseph to be a blessing for himself, a blessing to his family, to his country. And so this morning, we, we, we kind of transition, and Jesus' prayer transitions away from this prayer for himself and he begins to pray for his disciples. So we're going to read verses 6 through um, 19 this morning. So John 17, starting in verse 6, and Jesus is saying in his prayer to his Father, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. And they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I've given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I am from you, and they have believed that you sent me. Verse 9 says, and I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I've guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction. But the scripture might be full, of, uh, but that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have. My joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 15 says, And I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they may also be sanctified in truth. Let's pray. Lord, I pray this morning that as we continue through your prayer, one of the last prayers that you'll pray here on earth, that you allow us to see something, that you take these words and that you speak them into our lives. Lord, I pray that that you give me your words. I pray that I be your mouthpiece. Lord, I pray that everything that we say today is honoring to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you work in our hearts and in our lives. I pray you melt us. I pray that you help us to see the seriousness of this passage. I pray that you allow us to change. Help us to be able to finish the task that you've given to us. This morning, I pray that you give us wisdom and discernment. Broken hearts, open minds. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. Jesus um, begins to pray for his disciples. Again, I find this fascinating because he knows the enormity of what he will be going through in the next few moments. 
He knows the torture. He knows the embarrassment. He knows the ridicule. He knows the people will be spitting on him, laughing at him. He knows the beatings. He knows all of that. And despite knowing that, he spends a few verses praying for himself. And then he begins to pray for his disciples. Those who are closest to him. See, Jesus had prepared them for a job. If you remember, um, about this time last year, we uh, had our very first service. Today marks our one-year anniversary. It's exciting. It's awesome. The very first Sunday, and for three weeks, we spent three weeks talking about the Great Commission. Matthew uh, 28, 18 through 20. Let me read this to you to remind you. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus had laid out a plan for his disciples. That plan is identified in the Great Commission to go, to teach, to baptize. See, and Jesus knew that. Jesus knew it would not be easy for them. So he began to pray for his disciples that they would be able to accomplish the task that he had prepared them for. We see this in this passage here, verse 6. He says, I've manifested your name that word manifest uh, could be better described as to go forth to show forth Um, jesus here is not talking about um, an illustration jesus is not talking here about verbally communicating verbally preaching about god what he's saying is i've lived Uh, people i've been able to observe you because of me i've fleshed out everything that you are god and because of that the people have seen it they've accepted it and they followed me they know what i'm supposed to they know what they're supposed to do because they have accepted me they've accepted my truth verse 8 says for i've given them words Uh, in this portion of prayer we see words showing up two different two different times two different meanings um, this particular passage, this particular word right here of words isn't talking about the literal scriptures. This is talking about um, words that he had spoken to them, conversation that they had had. Um, a good illustration of that would be John chapter 4, the woman at the well. When Jesus meets this woman at the well and, and they begin to talk, and he just uses literal words with her. Like he, she says, hey, I, um, I don't have my husband. And he's like, you're right, you don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the guy you're currently with right now isn't your husband? That's words, communication. So Jesus is referring to the same thing. Like we've had words. They've accepted the words. They know the words. They know the truth. And they've accepted it. See, one of the first things in order for us to be able to accomplish the Great Commission, just like the disciples, in order for them to accomplish the Great Commission, is they have to know what they're supposed to be doing. We have to know what we're supposed to be doing. The only way that we can know is to be in God's word. The only way we can know the plan, the only way we can know the path, is to know his words. 
Verse 13, later on, it goes into, uses the word logos for words, and that is the literal scriptures. I find it interesting in verse 9, it says, I'm, not, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. This is a very specific prayer that Jesus is praying. Remember I talked about this idea of prayer of the world? This world had been used three different ways in the Gospel of John. It began, started off talking about the world, the literal world, the dirt, the trees, the sun. Well, the sun's not the earth, I guess. It starts off that way, and then it transitions into all of humanity, every living, breathing person. Right, we use the idea, John three sixteen, for God so loved the world. Right, he's not talking about trees. Okay, I don't think, Jesus liked the environment. He created it, but he wasn't an environmentalist. Okay? He's talking about all of humanity. He died for all of humanity. And then it transitions. John chapter 10. I'm the good shepherd. Okay? The world transitions. There, the world is one side. Those who follow Jesus are another side. They're two different teams. They don't work together. Oil and water, they don't mix. And so Jesus very clearly says here in this passage, he goes, I'm not praying for the world. I'm not praying for those who've rejected me. I'm praying for those who are following me. In this, we see that there's two primary things that Jesus prays for those who are following him. The first one we see in verse 11. He says this, he goes, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I'm coming to you, Holy Father, Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. I would underline or circle that word one. Jesus, in his prayer, the first thing he prays about, and this goes back to what we said before, in going back to the middle of John chapter 15, about this importance of believer-to-believer relationship, the importance of church, of gathering together, Jesus is praying for unity. He's praying that these disciples, that they stay close with each other. To the point where he, the illustration that he uses, the closeness that he uses, he compares the the desired relationship of believers to be that of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. That's pretty close. He, He prays for unity. Now, that's difficult for us, isn't it? Like, human-like speaking, like, we all are different, aren't we? We all share some similarities. Some of us, before the service today, maybe we're gathering up talking about football and how crazy of a week it's been in college football and all the upsets and all that stuff. We can have a good time talking about those things. Those might be similar things that we like about. And maybe some of you ladies were on another corner talking about Pinterest and what's on Pinterest and what you pinned lately and what you can do with whatever on Pinterest okay maybe there's different you can have similarities like you can have things that you you can rally about and talk about but then there's also the other human side of us where jealousy can get in or pride can enter in then it becomes pretty difficult to be unified at churches we see it in churches uh, one of the things I think that I, I believe that breaks the heart of Christ 
is when he begins to see churches compete against each other for all the wrong reasons. When you, you can see that church becomes a platform of who has the biggest church with the best programs, the nicest buildings, the best location, or whatever it may be. One of the things I, I continue to hope and pray for us as a faith family is that God always keeps us grounded. Um, I, I believe, my heart of hearts believes that Redemption Hill will one day be closer to 10,000 than 10 people. I believe God will do tremendous things with our, our church. I, I, we stand here today at one year, and I don't believe that this is like a typical, I don't think this is a typical beginning of a church. I mean, I really believed that we were close to being able to have our one-year anniversary in a new facility. And we're going to miss it by a couple of weeks, but, but still to be able to go into a place within a year, um, to be able to have where we're, this is not our typical Sunday, but when we've been averaging around 100 people, like that's tremendous. That's awesome. God's doing great things. Beyond just those numbers, it's been amazing for me to be able to see how we've seen so many decisions made this year. Some 12 to 15 people in the service accepting Christ. Oh, I mean, we've, we've well over 100 decisions this year of spiritual magnitude. Baptizing like 8 or 10 people in June. Like those are amazing. Those are cool things that we've been able to see God work and do. But I hope that we're doing them for the right reasons. With the kingdom in mind. That we're doing these things not so we can sit back and pound our chest that, wow, we're the best church in Tallahassee. We're this up and coming church. I don't know that we're doing it because God's called us to do it. It's the task that God's given us and we're pursuing that task. See, I I believe there's all sorts of pride in churches like any other industry. And it becomes very easy for churches to begin to compete against each other rather than try and reach people for the kingdom. He prayed for unity first. One of the things I believe that we as a church have to guard within our own faith family is unity. We specifically use the term faith family. I don't, I've never, I don't believe I've ever referred to you as our congregation. That's kind of like that high priestly prayer. I don't, it just, it's too formal. I like the idea of a family, a faith family. Um, but those of you who are parts of families, you know that family isn't always lovey-dovey, is it? It's not always like Thanksgiving meal together. Like every family has that crazy cousin Eddie. It's part of it. It's part of a family. We, we have those moments where, where we find love really, really easy. And there are those moments when love isn't quite so easy. There are times in life where um, your particular life is going great, that you just see the blessings of God and everything. It's like one constant rose parade. And then somebody else is battling the polar opposite that no matter what they touch it seems to break 
becomes challenging. We as a faith family have to be able to, we need to work to protect the unity for Christ. The second thing that he begins to pray for, we see in verse 15. I find this interesting. Verse 15 says, and I, I, I would encourage you to underline this in your Bibles. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See, Jesus specifically asked the Father to not take them out of the world. To keep them in the world. As believers, this is a continual, constant battle for us. It is not easy for us to be in the world, but not of the world. Again, when we talk about the world, we're talking about a system. A philosophy that goes against God. That has rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus warns us in John 16 or 15 that if, if, we've, if the world's rejected him, he's gonna, the world will reject us as well. The thing that he has to endure, we'll have to endure similarly. Okay? It, it goes without saying. We've mentioned this before. Pure persecution is going to come. And for us to remain in the persecution is not easy. It's not enjoyable. All of us would much rather, the moment we accept Christ, we would be much better off to go straight to heaven perfection the disciples had spent three and a half years following jesus they wanted to continue to follow him their rabbi they most certainly would have liked to follow him to heaven but jesus said no father don't take them out of the world keep them there one of the things i've i've kind of noticed in the last, I guess, few years. As we've mentioned, we've used some current events and politics and some of that the last couple of weeks talking about different things. We've talked about how um, in our own society we've seen how the, um, the way that our country has viewed marriage change. You know, we're, we're fortunate. I, I still, I'll, I'll tell you this, that we live in the greatest country in the world. Um, we live in a country that was founded on a Christian heritage. You can read all of our founding documents and you see the fingerprints of God all over it. Okay, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not quite the patriot that Zach Warren is that wears the American flag shorts. But I believe in America. Like I believe we live in a, a, an amazing country. But I'll also tell you this. We've seen a great transition in the country that we live in. It makes things difficult and hairy sometimes. And as we've seen all these different things going on, um, I've also noticed that we have, we have one, a, a group of, of, of people that begin to try and remove themselves completely out of all of it and build like this shelter around them, almost like this monastery-type movement. Where like if, if we remove us completely out of this worldliness we're going to protect our family 
And according to what Jesus prays to his father there, that's not what he's asked us to do. If you go back into Luke chapter 10, uh, the parable that we're probably all familiar with, uh, the, the, the Good Samaritan. You guys remember that parable? Guys, Jesus uses it as a walking along. Let me, let me read this parable to you real quick. Luke 10, uh, 25 says this, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him, and this is Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him and passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he, was, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. It's a pretty humbling story. And when we look at that parable, we notice that those two men are on the other side of the road. They passed by. They, they walked across the other side of the road to pass by. The one in need. The Samaritan. Gospel of John, we talked about this several times. The Samaritans and the Jews did not coexist. They did not do well with each other. They hated each other. The Levite that they mentioned there is a religious man, priest. And they go on the other side to pass by. That's a great illustration here into Jesus' prayer. Because God did ne- never, ever intended us to live a life completely out of the world around us. He put us here for a reason, the Great Commission. We're the vehicle that God is going to use to bring souls to him. Just like the disciples were. Those 12 men would turn the world upside down. There's no way they could have turned the world upside down if they would have gone back and stayed in that upper room by themselves. They engaged the world around them. Now listen, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. We're to be different. God's called us to be different, but he's called us to go into the world. Redemption Hill, he's called us as a church to go into the world. That's why our mission statement is that we exist to see souls saved and lives changed. It's simplistic. It's simple. doesn't mean it's easy. But if we don't go out there, we don't tell our friends, 
if we don't tell our neighbors about Jesus Christ, if we don't show them the love of Christ, then what are we doing? What's our purpose? What's God called us here? Why has he left us here? kind of goes back to last week when Jesus was praying and was able to say he finished his task. Our days as a church are still beginning. But I want to talk more about our lives individually. What's God called you to do? Who's God called you to reach? The answer is not to build a wall and get away from everything. The answer is to engage. We have to know the truth first. We, we know it here. We have to know it. We have to commit to it. See, Jesus laid out his plan, his, his, his strategy in changing the world is laid out right there in, in John 17, 15. If you didn't underline your Bible, underline it. That's his plan to keep us here. There's no other plan. Jesus didn't come up with plan 1A and then 1B. It's just one plan. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world. And for their sake, I concentrate, consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Verse 12 we end with this. It says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. John chapter 10, the good shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd. And he talks about how when he talks, the sheep know his name. And that he's there to protect the sheep. While we're in this world, but not of this world, we can lay our heads at night and sleep easy knowing that the shepherd, the good shepherd, is holding us and keeping us. No man, no thing can grab us or pluck us away or out of those hands. We are there Better, better word, better illustration is we're tattooed to the palms of Christ. And nothing can rub it out. Nothing. It's there. It's permanent. The Savior. The one who at the end of this chapter, or beginning of chapter 18, will cross the river and go into the Garden of Gethsemane. It will there be arrested. Mere hours. 
before he's hanging on a cross. Not days, not weeks, not months, but hours. Praise for the disciples then. That they have the strength to persevere. That they stay in the world, but not of the world. And the Father keeps them just like he kept them while he was on earth. And that rings true for us today. What's so awesome is next week when we come back together, the last portion of John 17 is Jesus praying for us today. Jesus prays for the generations that follow who will believe. You guys realize that we're on the heart and the mind of Christ at the very end of his life. To me, that's profound. It's amazing. This week, I would encourage you guys to continue to read John 17, a prayer. Not Jesus talking to the disciples, but Jesus talking to his Father. And we, this week, commit to being in the world, but not of the world. That we commit to reaching those around us. Just like he encouraged the disciples. Just like we talked about the first three weeks of Redemption Hill, when it goes back to the Great Commission. That we commit to that. So we can stand before God one day, having finished the task. And not get in front of him, embarrassed because we kept offering excuses and reasons why we ought not do it or shouldn't do it or the time wasn't right. The time will never be right. Let's pray.